Genesis 3, 1 through 21. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and, it w and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave, me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be con contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And, Adam's, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, MT. <clears throat> well, um, for the summer, what we're going to do during this portion of our worship services, kind of the preaching, teaching portion of uh, Sunday mornings, is we're going to be looking at uh, what we're calling the Bible's greatest hits. These are the most you know, famous, well-known stories in the Hebrew Scriptures, you know, bangers like Adam and Eve and uh, David and Goliath and uh, Noah and the ark and, and you know, the, these stories. And uh, you may hear that and you think, okay, why? Why are we doing this? Uh, because my guess is if, if you're not a Christian, these stories for you at best are uh, untrue fairy tales, and at worst, they're, it's, it's oppressive propaganda. And so either way, it's just easy to kind of write these stories off and dismiss them and not take them seriously. And uh, if, you're, if you are a Christian, you can hear these stories and think, well, I think they deserve, uh, the, the best lane for these stories is like a children's Bible, not like, not like Sunday morning. These, these are like kiddie stories. They have a fun little moral about them, you know, don't be like Daniel, 
uh, or be like Daniel, be, don't be like uh, Adam, you know, whatever. And so it's easy even as Christians to hear these stories and kind of roll your eyes and dismiss them. Um, and yet, these are the stories that in many ways are the foundation of God communicating his love to us. And on top of that, these are stories that are, that are easily misunderstood, easily misunderstood from kind of what they were intended to uh, mean. And so it's easy to dismiss something, and yet if we're honest, maybe we don't even understand what they are. So what we're going to do this summer is try to take them seriously, lean into some of these stories that we may be tempted for whatever reason to kind of roll our eyes at, dismiss them, and give them the time of day that we think that they deserve. And so we're starting off with... Uh, maybe the, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Adam and Eve eating the you know, fruit in the garden, which, by the way, the fruit was not an apple. It doesn't say in the Bible it was an apple. could have been a kumquat for all we know. We don't know. An apricot, maybe one of these hybrid things they do now. I don't know. But, um, but before we get into the story, here's how I want to set it up. You, you know when you go to, like, a, a, a doctor's office. You're, you're a new appointment. You, you're a new, a new patient. You set up an appointment with a new doctor. And you get to the office and they hand you that clipboard with like 800 pieces of paper that you've got to fill out. All this paperwork and you sit down and you're like, oh my word, it's going to take me 10 years to fill all this stuff out. I didn't know I was have to do homework when I get to these places. But you sit there and you fill out the paperwork and you get to at least one section that asks about your family medical history. And you start, it's easy when I get in these moments to kind of just be like, I, why do they need this? Why does my dermatologist need to know if my grandmother on my mother's side had high blood pressure or not? Why, why does this matter? And, you know, it's easy to make fun of it, but you realize, oh, okay, there's a, the reason they're asking this is because your current problems didn't arise in a vacuum. There's a whole genetic backstory as to why you have the particular issues that you have. So they want to know. In the same way, uh, when you look at the problems of your own life or the problems in the world at large, those didn't just arise in a vacuum. There's a backstory. And Genesis 3 is the backstory. Genesis 3 is the Bible providing you the backstory of why the world is the way that the world is, why our lives are the way that they are. And so we're, that's, let's look at it. I want to look at this really in three different headings. I want to look at the, the root of our problems, the fruit of our problems, and then the solution to our problems. I couldn't come up with a third word that rhymed with root and fruit that meant solution. So if you got one, let me know. And then in four years when I preach this again, we'll, I'll, I'll change it. But um, so the root, the fruit, and then the solution. What, what, is, what is the root of our problems? Well, the story, this story, famous story, takes place in the Garden of Eden. This is right after God created the world and everything in it. And the Bible says that God created the world good. There was no sin, no evil. Everything was good and harmonious and beautiful and right. It was peaceful. It was shalom. And then in verse 1, you have this evil serpent who enters the garden and initiates this conversation with Eve, the woman, which automatically, you're one verse in and you've got a million questions. Why is there a talking snake? Um, if the world is good, then where did this evil thing come from? Uh, you may wonder, okay, when did this story take place? Was this eight bazillion years ago, 10,000 years ago? When was this? You may read a story like this and you think, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? 
they didn't have parents? What, what does that look like? You know, all these questions are important. They all have their place. Uh, we're not going to answer any of those or try to answer any of those because the, none of those questions get at the main heart of this passage. And that's what we're after here. So let's keep going. This serpent comes up to Eve and asks uh, this question. Look at it. The serpent says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which is a brilliant question because two chapters, or I guess one chapter before this, God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, look at everything. This is all for you. This is an all-you-can-eat buffet. Whatever you want, eat it. The trees, the, the fruit, the, it's, it's all there and it's all for you. There's one exception to this. Don't eat that one particular tree. If you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Outside of that one exception, abundance free for you. And so the serpent comes in and says, okay, did God actually say you can't eat anything? You can't eat any of this stuff? Which of course is wrong. But what he's doing is, is this is like the movie um, Inception. He's planting suspicion in her mind where she now can start to think, oh, I didn't know you could even question God. Maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe he can't be trusted. But she, you know, holds down the line, and in verse 2, she says, no, 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 he didn't say that. He said, we can eat anything we want except for this one tree, because if we eat of that, then we'll die. And then look at what the serpent says in verse 4. He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he looks at her and says, God is lying to you, and he's holding out on you. He's got these laws and these rules that he's thrown up, and they're totally arbitrary, and they don't make any sense, and he's trying to restrict your freedom. He's trying to make you miserable. He doesn't want you to enjoy life in the way that you could enjoy it. So the pivotal verse after this conversation is verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. In other words, she starts to do the math. She looks at this fruit that God said, don't eat that. And she says, but wait a second. This doesn't make any sense. It's edible. It looks delicious. And apparently it's got some amazing health benefits. So why would this be wrong? And so she eats, and she gives some to her husband, and he eats. And that right there, that's the moment. That is the root of all the human problems. And if you get under the hood and you think, okay, what was going on in that moment? Here's what was going on. In that moment, she is elevating her reason and her desires over God's word. It doesn't make any sense to her. And so she says, what makes sense to me is what I'm going with. He may have said, don't do this, but what does he know? I know better than him. I know what's best. And and that's the move. It's this move that says, okay, God, you can tell me what to do, but I will listen to you only insofar as it makes sense to me. 
only insofar as it fits within my desires and my understanding of the world. So what they're doing in that moment is, is God's getting demoted from the position of God, and he's getting moved down to a position of consultant. You can give me advice, and I'll take the advice if it makes sense and if I want to do it. But if it doesn't, I'm in charge which means that she and he have promoted themselves to be the position where they are their own lords and they are their own masters, and that's the move. That's the root. It is when humanity substitutes ourselves for God. We want to be God. We want to be in charge of our own lives. And that impulse has been passed down to every single one of us. And so here's what it might look like now. It might look like God saying to us, thou shalt not steal don't steal. And we say, I like that. That makes sense. If we steal things from other people, if, if everybody did that, the world would just be chaos. The world would be, you know, anarchy. Of course, we like that idea. And then you go to Chipotle for lunch, and you go through the line, you order, you load up your burrito, and uh, you get to the end, and, you know, you order a water because it's cheaper, and they give you a glass, and you got your empty glass water, and then you go over to the Coke machine to fill up your water, and then you begin to realize, ooh, Coke sounds way better than water. And you start to think like Eve. You say, it is, um, it is delightful to the eyes. It, uh, it, is, good. it is good for food. And, uh, and so then you start to think, you start to rationalize. Okay, this is a mega giant corporation. What is eight ounces of Coke going to do to this? It's not even going to create a dent. It's not going to matter at all. Who cares? And in fact, nobody's even going to notice. And if they did, it's not like these workers care. What's the big deal? Coke. And so you've seen what you've done. You've elevated your reasoning, your desires over God's word. Uh, let's do another one. Let's talk about sex. It's always a fun topic at a church. Uh, God's word comes to us and says, um, I created sex to be enjoyed exclusively within the context of marriage. And you hear that and you think, well, that makes zero sense to me. That feels completely arbitrary. That feels restrictive. Why, why would God straightjacket our desires when it's consensual, when, it's, when it, it, it feels right? How could it be wrong if it feels right? And so we elevate our desires. We elevate our own reasoning and prioritize that over God's word. We do that over and over and over. And in fact, that's, that's the Bible's explanation for why the world is in the state of things the way that it is. It's when we substitute ourselves for God. We want to be the Lord. We want to be in charge. We want to be our own masters, and we'll call the shots. That's the root, us substituting ourselves for God, which leads to the second question, okay, if that's if that's the root, then what's the fruit? In other words, what's the, um, what's the fallout? What are the results of this? And there's so much that we could talk about under this second heading because this is such a long passage, but we're just going to do a 30,000-foot flyover. Look at verse 8. It says um, uh, that Adam and Eve immediately hide from God, which means there's now dysfunction that just got introduced into their spirituality. There's a spiritual alienation that's, that's playing out. And then look at verse 12 and 13. Adam and Eve start blaming each other for what's happened. And so you start to see this uh, relational conflict 
There's, uh, they're butting heads. And um, in fact, in the next chapter, Genesis 4, which we'll look at next week, uh, it's the story of the first murder. So you have humanity experiencing conflict that's only getting worse. And then look at verse 17. It says that the ground itself is cursed, which means there's an environmental breakdown that's happening. So you step back and you see, okay, things are starting to get damaged and broken spiritually and relationally and environmentally in every which way. It's kind of like um, if you had a, a human body, healthy human body, and you know it's made up of all of these uh, systems, all of these interdependent, interconnected systems, your respiratory system, your circulatory system, your uh, muscular system, nervous system, all, all these different systems. And if you give somebody a shot of lethal poison in their arm, that poison doesn't just stay in their arm. It, it spreads and it starts to impact and infect all of these different systems. And damage happens and it starts to collapse and breaks down, which then damages this other system that's dependent on this system. And that damage and that breaks down. And it's like the whole domino effect happens where everything is damaged and everything is broken. And the Bible is saying, this is the fallout of humanity's rebellion against God. Everything's damaged. We're damaged rationally and emotionally and spiritually and relationally and environmentally and racially and systemically. In every which way, there's damage. But there's one aspect of all of this damage that I really want to zero in on. And we could talk about all of this, take forever, but we're going to look at one. Look at verse uh, 7. It says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, which is fascinating because for the first time ever, they realize that they're naked. And rather than that being uh, a neutral or positive thing for them, this overwhelming sense of dread comes over them. They realize they're exposed, they're vulnerable, and so they panic and grab some fig leaves and start hiding themselves from each other. They cover parts of themselves up from each other. And in fact, in the, the verse right after this, as we already mentioned, they hide from God, which shows you that hiding is now a normal part of the fallen human experience. But it's fascinating because before this, their nakedness was good. It was glorious. The fact that they were exposed and that they were seen by each other was the reason why they could have intimacy with each other, why they had connection, why were they, they were able to commune with. It was, it, was a, it was a glorious thing to be known and exposed. And yet when we rebelled against God, something psychologically traumatic happened so that now when we become aware of the fact that we're exposed we're overwhelmed, and we've got to cover it up. And that feeling, that sensation is, of course, shame, which is a word and a concept that's in vogue these days. But it's in vogue for a reason. It's because we all feel it. We all feel that feeling of, I'm exposed, and it's not a good thing. In fact, Brene Brown, who is, of course, the, uh, our modern-day shame specialist, our shame uh, guru, um, she says that shame is that voice is the never enough inside of us. 
It's that voice that says, you're insufficient. You are exposed, and that's a bad thing. It's that feeling of, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not whatever enough. In fact, there's another book, um, Untangling Emotions by Alistair Groves and Winston Smith. And they say, shame is the voice inside of you that says, something is wrong with me and others can see it. And we all know that experience, it's horrible. We know that feeling, that sense of dread of, I am uh, vulnerable, I'm seen, and that's a bad thing because what are people gonna think about me? And so we hide, and we don't have fig leaves that we hide behind anymore. Uh, We're a little bit more sophisticated, but we still hide. One way that we hide is through our online presence. You know, we take pictures of our lives and we filter them to get the best pictures and then we blast them out to the universe and we, pro- we project and present ourselves to the world as, look at how much fun we're having. Look at how awesome this vacation is. Look how amazing this meal is I'm about to eat. Look at how virtuous I am because I care about this social cause or I care about that social thing. And of course, there's nothing wrong per se with posting pictures online. It's not the point. The point is, is that we can often do that in a way where we're hiding behind it. Our true selves is not filtered and perfectly manicured and cropped And so we present to the world, this is the life I actually live, and yet underneath it, we don't ever want anyone to see how anxious we are, how depressed we are, how lonely we are. And so it's just fig leaves, just branding, just spin and PR. Look over here. Don't look over here. You know, we can do it with religion, too. We can do it with church. We can do it with ministry, where if you show up at church if you say the right words, if you quote the right authors, then that's a way for you to say, hey, look, look at this. And then the rest of you know, certain circles will say, yes, that's right. You're the, you're, a good kind of, you're the right kind of person. You're good. You're spiritual. You're moral. And we don't want anybody to see what's actually happening underneath the fig leaves. I don't want you to see how dysfunctional my family is. I don't want you to see my addictions. I don't want you to see my anger. And so, you know, it's just fig leaves. It's like uh, magicians using misdirection. It's like, look over here while I'm, I'm hiding over here. You know, we can also do it with uh, Southern politeness. Us down here in the South, we do this a lot where we can be charming. If we're charming and deferential, and ask you all the questions, make the whole conversation about you, you're going to experience me as being uh, really kind, really nice, and the whole conversation's about you, but don't you dare ask me any questions because I don't want to get under the microscope. I don't want to be seen. Let's make it about you. Nothing to see over here. Let's talk about you. That's the way we hide. I mean, we, we hide behind everything. We can hide behind our money. We can hide behind our success. We can hide behind our, our family, on and on and on. There's lots of different forms that fig leaves take. But we hide, and I know why we do it. I know why I do it. It's because we feel shame. And that shame drives us to hide ourselves because we think if somebody really saw us, if somebody really, if we were really exposed, they would come to the same conclusions about us that we have come to, that we're unlovable, 
that we're disgusting. That's how we feel about ourselves and our shame, it's our shame talking. And so we're so afraid that somebody else is gonna to come to the same conclusion. So what do we do? What's the solution to this? Because you start to pile up all these problems and it gets really overwhelming fast when you think, okay, you look at the world and all the violence, all the conflict, all the environmental stuff, systemic stuff, if the world is broken and then you look inside yourself and you're like, okay, there's a lot of junk in there too, a lot of shame, a lot of fear, uh, a lot of lack of authenticity. What's the solution? What do we do? Because it's so massive and it's so deep and it's so overwhelming and you start to look and you think, I can't fix this. And you're right, you can't, and I can't. That's why the solution to these problems comes from God. He provides the solution. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. So let's look at that lastly. What's the solution? Well, the solution here really comes in two forms. It comes in a promise and it comes in a picture. Here's the promise. Look look at verse 15. God tells the serpent... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's cryptic, but there's a promise there. He's saying one day I'm going to have a descendant from Eve come and he is going to be the person who's going to crush in the skull of evil itself. He's going to make the world right but he's going to suffer in the process. It's kind of like if you have a group of friends or a, you know, uh, your family, people that you love hanging out over here, and there's this poisonous snake that slithers up, and you're the only one that sees it, and so you have to act fast, and so you just barefoot stomp on the snake's head. And the snake's fangs, of course, get in your heel as you're stomping it. And so the snake is crushed, but now the venom and the poison is in you. And you died, and evil was destroyed, and the ones that you loved were saved. And God says, that's what I'm going to do. One day, she's going to have a child that's going to come and do this very thing. He's going to conquer evil, fix the world, but he'll suffer in the process. That's the promise, but there's a picture. The picture comes towards the end. You know, it's fascinating. There's this subtext in this whole story that says, okay, God had said... If you disobey me, you're going to die. And they disobeyed him, and they didn't immediately die. Why is that? Well, look at verse 21. It says that God clothed them with the skins of an animal. Now, where do those skins come from? They came from an animal that God himself sacrificed, that God himself killed. He said, I'm not going to kill you in this moment, though you deserve it. I'm going to provide a substitute for you. Out of complete mercy and grace, someone else, something else is going to receive the punishment that you deserve. And here's what's so beautiful. God takes that sacrifice and applies it to the deepest wound in their soul. He covers them in their shame. And of course, this promise in this picture, it's not pointing to some animal in the Garden of Eden. It's pointing to the Lamb of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is pointing to Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who came as our substitute, the one to reverse the curse, to crush the head of evil, to fix the world. He's the hope of the whole world. And yet the way that he does it is not through victory and and conquering through his strength. It's through his sacrifice. It's through his weakness. It's through his suffering. He is our substitute. In fact, you could say the root of the human problem is when we substituted ourselves for God. And the solution to the human problem is God substituting himself for us. You know, there's this fascinating detail in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as Jesus is being crucified, it tells you that the Roman guards were casting lots for his garments. They're gambling at the foot of the cross for his clothing, which tells you what? That Jesus is strung up there naked. He's totally exposed, totally vulnerable, totally stripped, bare. You know why? Because he's our substitute. He is stripped and humiliated and mocked and rejected so that you could be covered, so that you could be blessed. He is rejected so that you and I could be accepted. That is the gospel. When you look at what Jesus has done for you and you trust in him by faith, you know what that does for you? This gives you the resources to face your own shame. That voice inside of you that says you are unlovable and you are disgusting, that voice gets exposed as a lie because the gospel shouts back to you, you are loved by the only person in the universe whose opinion truly matters that he was willing to do this on your behalf. Of course you're loved. It undoes that voice inside of you. And in fact, this is what also gives you the resources to face the rejection of the world. Because there may come a day, if there hasn't already, where you get exposed as a fraud. You know, people see behind the fig leaves, as it were, and they see who you really are, which is a horrifying feeling because that means that there's a, a, a high likelihood that they may run or they may laugh or reject you, which is a painful, terrible thing to experience. And yet the gospel gives you the ability to face that because what the gospel tells you is that you have the reassurance you will never, ever be rejected by the only person in the universe whose opinion truly matters. You will never be shamed by the God of the universe because Jesus was shamed for you. He was rejected for you. You have the resources because you know I am accepted and I am loved and I am adorned in glory and beauty because of Jesus. That frees you. That gives you the resources to face it. So I hope you see these, these stories are not just irrelevant kitty myths. These stories are beautiful and they're popular and they're, they're famous for a reason because they clearly present to you and to me that we have a great need for a savior and even more so, we have a great savior for our need. So I hope that you join us this summer as we continue to look at these beautiful, amazing, confusing, weird stories. Join us this summer. That's an invitation for you. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, as we consider um, your love for us, 
your grace towards us, uh, the fact that you meet us in our shame, you, you respond to that voice inside of us and you respond to the dysfunction of the world with Jesus, I pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our eyes and help us to see that you are the hope of the world, not just for us as individuals or for us as a church, but, but the hope of the world. You are the solution to the problems. Help us to rest in that solution. Help us to rest in Jesus and to take on his voice, to prioritize his voice and his words over and against ours. We pray this in his name. Amen.